As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Pax Britannia fans. I'm Jenny from the Australian Histories podcast, where we take a fresh look at some of the brilliant stories from Australia's past. If you have an interest in Australian history, you can dip in and out of the topic episodes that interest you and learn a little about the important and iconic incidents, people and places of Australia. Topics range from ironclad bushrangers, British convicts and intrepid explorers, to the beloved platypus or the mighty emu. Ponder the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the massive dingo and rabbit-proof fences, or consider the Eureka Rebellion. If you can cope with my Aussie accent, I'm sure you'll find something that'll pique your interest. Have a look at the episodes available at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. That's history spelt with I-E-S. Thanks for the opportunity to chat to your audience, Samuel. Cheers, everyone. Welcome to Pax Britannica, episode 41, Murder on the Saltwater Frontier. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time, we saw the settlement of Providence Island in the Caribbean, intended as a forward outpost of Protestantism, in the war with the Antichrist of Spain. We also covered the splitting of the colony of Massachusetts Bay, as those colonists with views unacceptable to the colonial leadership were forcibly exiled. Roger Williams preached a form of religious toleration, and questioned the right of the English to occupy land that rightfully belonged to native communities. After escaping Massachusetts, running through the snow, Williams established the Providence Plantation on land purchased from the Narragansett. He gained neighbours after the antinomian controversy split the Boston church, and Anne Hutchinson and her family arrived after being expelled from the colony. The new arrivals established their own settlement, and in a few years' time would formally unify, becoming the precursor to the modern state of Rhode Island and Providence. 
These were not the only English settlements in the New England area by the end of the 1630s, though, in order to keep the narrative going, we're going to skim through most of them. The settlement of New Hampshire also came out of the antinomian controversy. John Wheelwright had also been exiled for his teachings, and together with his party, established Exeter, on terms quite similar to the Mayflower Compact. In June 1637, Reverend John Davenport established the colony of New Haven, which copied many of the political systems of Massachusetts, particularly restricting the right to vote to church members. Neither of these colonies have much of a role to play in our narrative right now, though we will return to them in the future. However, the colony of Connecticut is a different story. In May 1636, influential preacher Thomas Hooker led a party out of Newtown and settled at Sukiag on the Connecticut River. That was what the indigenous people in the region called it, though they probably didn't pronounce it like I just did. The English renamed it to Hartford. So, why did Hooker leave Massachusetts? There are three potential reasons. One political, one economic, and one religious, which combined possibly explain why Hooker left the relative security of Newtown to start a new settlement. Politically, while Thomas Hooker was no friend of Roger Williams and had argued against the defacement of the English flag in Plymouth, nevertheless, Hooker was appalled by the seemingly arbitrary actions of the general court. This was despite a close friendship with John Haynes, who had been governor when Williams was exiled. Religiously, Hooker disagreed with the mainstream Puritan view towards membership of the church. Not to the extent of Hutchinson, but still. Hooker believed that the usually stringent process to join the church was counterproductive. Instead, he considered a profession of faith as enough to take communion in his congregation. In this, he differed with another highly influential Massachusetts preacher, John Cotton. A historian in the 17th century argued that it was this rivalry that was the main reason Hooker upped stakes. The town simply wasn't big enough for the two of them. This wasn't, however, the reason Hooker gave for his move. His reason was economic, and he complained that the land around Newtown was too rocky and simply not of good enough quality for farming. There was little place to expand either, crammed as it was between Watertown and Charlestown, both of which were older and occupied better land. So, for some combination of these reasons, Hooker led around a hundred members of his congregation on the five-day journey to the future site of Hartford in May 1636. They were joined by the new settlements of Weathersfield and Windsor. Windsor was populated by migrants from the Massachusetts town of Dorchester, led by the magistrate Roger Ludlow. Ludlow had been appointed by the MBC to lead the burgeoning colony until more formal government could be established. Over the next year or two, a number of other settlements sprung up, and Hooker's friend, former Governor Haynes, arrived in Hartford in 1637, building a grand house which would serve as the governor's residence after his death. From 1638, the disparate settlements along the Connecticut River came together, to decide what form their colonial government would take. In May of that year, Hooker preached a sermon where he argued that political authority came from the people, though 
By this, he of course meant the elect. Let's not go crazy and call Hooker a Democrat, because he was nothing of the sort. His theory of government shared many elements with the Massachusetts Bay Company, and their covenant between the church and the people. Possibly after seeing the various governing styles of Winthrop, Dudley, Vane, and his friend Haynes, Hooker did preach that magistrates had a responsibility to the people who chose them, and had the right to limit their power. Hooker then practised what he preached when, along with Haynes, Ludlow, and other representatives of Hartford, Weathersfield, and Windsor, established the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. The Fundamental Orders compete with the Mayflower Compact for the title of earliest political constitution in America. Now, obviously, the Compact was several years older than the Orders, but the Orders establish much greater liberty for the citizens of the colony. So it's debatable where the fundamental orders sit in America's constitutional heritage. The orders established a general court of four deputies from each town, six assistants and a governor. So far, so expected. The governor and his assistants would be elected by the freemen, who were expected to be church members. Okay, also fairly par for the course, even if Hooker had opened the membership up to more people. Where the orders began to differ was in the election of the deputies. For this, the franchise was opened up to any man living in a town. They also acknowledged that the assistants had different responsibilities to the deputies, and allowed the deputies to meet without the assistants if need be. After the overbearing government of Winthrop, the orders also made it a condition that the general court had to meet every April and September and allowed the deputies to convene the general court in the event that the governor refused to do so. John Haynes was duly elected governor, and he would alternate in this position with Edward Hopkins each year. The orders also prevented governors from serving consecutive terms, which was surely another reaction to the framers' experience in the NBC. Then we have the Saybrook Colony which had been established at the mouth of the Connecticut River by John Winthrop Jr. in 1635. The Saybrook Colony was named in honour of two of its sponsors, Viscount Sayin Seal and Baron Brook. In fact, Saybrook Colony shared many of the patrons of the Providence Island Company, including parliamentarian John Pym. Winthrop Jr. was employed as governor, and instructed to begin work on the settlement, which he duly did after his arrival in New England in 1635. He stayed in that colony while a fort was constructed at the mouth of the river, with Lieutenant Lyon Gardner in command. Winthrop Jr. was an assistant in the general court during the antinomian controversy, though he didn't sit in judgement of the accused. Saybrook Colony was apparently intended for its namesakes, though the Puritan lords hadn't completed their arrangements when the domestic situation rapidly changed. In the end, neither Viscount Sayin Seal nor Baron Brook would migrate to the New World. Saybrook Colony would eventually merge with the larger Connecticut Colony in 1644, though not before Saybrook played its role in a war which solidified English control over New England. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and 
often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Before we go any further, it's worth a moment on nomenclature. As always, I will use terms such as Native American, American Indian, Indigenous people, etc. fairly interchangeably. This is for a few reasons, and I'll paraphrase myself from last year. My understanding is that there is no consensus on exactly what term is correct. I thought Native American was the most acceptable, a replacement to an antiquated and inaccurate American Indian. But then I found out that not all Native Americans acknowledge the term, either because it is seen as yet another label imposed on them by outsiders, or because American Indian has been embraced after centuries of use. Likewise, many historians still use American Indian, or use it interchangeably with other terms like Amerindian. That's only referring to the modern United States. In Canada, there is a whole other controversy, with First Nations, Aboriginals, Inuit, as well as Indians. Add into that mix the names of individual tribes and confederations and nations, and their translation and adoption by the colonists with all of the errors and generalizations that you would expect from those sources, and it's a nightmare. So yes, I hope that explains why I use the words I use. The outbreak of the Pequot War had its roots in both European colonial ambition and indigenous rivalry. The Pequots were a large polity situated largely along the Thames River. They seem to have been relatively new to that specific region, though they had been local players for quite some time. Their rivalry with the Narragansetts appears to have been generations old. The Pequots held the fealty of multiple smaller groups, including the Niantic and the Mohegan, and as I just mentioned, they were rivals of the Narragansett. Though this rivalry was old, it had taken on a new dimension in recent years. With the arrival of the English and the Dutch, as well as other Europeans, the fur trade became the most lucrative business in the region, and in the 1630s, 
the Pequot and the Narragansett, were locked in a war for control of the most important route for this trade, the Connecticut River. The river stretches from the modern US-Canada border and empties into the Long Island Sound. None of the powers in the region, be they Narragansett or Pequot, English or Dutch, were blind to the value of this river. As Andrew Lipman explains in his article, Murder on the Saltwater Frontier, the name of which I have shamelessly adopted for this episode because it's just so good, this was a region of intertwined interests, connected by the water and those who sailed it, indigenous and European. The native peoples fought to be the dominant seller to the Europeans, while the Europeans competed to be their market. A scouting party of English had been threatened by a Dutch force, though it hadn't come to violence. Not yet, at least. So we have, at a minimum, a four-way contest for control of this valuable territory, based on control of the rivers and of the sea. Enter this volatile situation, like a particularly drunken, violent bull in a china shop, one John Stone. Lipman describes John Stone as notoriously unscrupulous. His final voyage was notably not out of character. Sailing from Virginia to New Amsterdam and from there to Boston, Stone caroused his way through taverns, into married women's beds, and onto other people's ships, and tried to make off with whatever he could while he was there. In New Amsterdam, he narrowly avoided being hanged for piracy. The authorities in Boston charged him with several crimes, including adultery. They fined him and exiled him on pain of death. On his return journey, he stopped in Plymouth, where, for some reason, he tried to stab the governor. After leaving Plymouth, Stone continued his strategy of pissing off everyone he met by forcibly kidnapping two men, either Pequot or Niantic vassals of the Pequot, as hostages and navigators as he sailed up the Connecticut River. Stone was unfamiliar with the river, and his deep-hulled ship was more accustomed to the open sea. It could easily run aground on the river's many hidden sandbanks, and so he needed guidance. This concern motivated his capture of the Pequot, and it would spell his end. The kidnapping would not stand. Unbeknownst to Stone, the Pequots had recently had one of their sachems captured by the Dutch, supposedly in response to their war with the Narragansetts. The Dutch wanted to trade, and war between two of their trading partners was bad for business. Taking the Sachem hostage was possibly meant to send a message, it's time to come to terms with the Narragansett, and go back to selling us furs and wampum. Nevertheless, when the Pequot handed over a ransom of wampum, they got their Sachem back, or at least they got his corpse. The Dutch had murdered him, and now the Pequot found themselves at war with the Dutch and the Narragansett. This was the context that Stone, with his misbegotten plan, either wasn't aware of or simply ignored. The Pequot had just had one of their people kidnapped by Europeans, and playing nice had just led to his murder. Now, it had happened again. They were done playing nice. The Pequot and their allies slash vassals, the Niantics, followed Stone's ship up the river until night fell. Then, Stone anchored, while some of his crew foraged for supplies and furs. Stone himself went to bed. Now the Indians struck. 
The men on shore were slaughtered in the darkness, and the Pequot warriors climbed aboard Stone's vessel. The sleeping Stone was butchered with his own hatchet, while his remaining crew were killed and their captives rescued. To cap off the drama of this raid, as the Pequot were leaving, a store of gunpowder was ignited, possibly accidentally. From the shore, the Pequot watched as the ship flew out of the water from the force of the explosion before sinking below the water of the Connecticut. I'll quote from Lipman's Murder on the Saltwater Frontier, just because I love his summary of Stone's death. He was a reckless intruder. A Virginian whose final voyage up the Connecticut was the last episode of an epic, booze-soaked rampage up and down the eastern seaboard. Months before Pequot's bludgeoned him to death, Stone had narrowly escaped being hanged for his drunken attempt at piracy in Manhattan, and for his drunken attempt at adultery in Boston, and both the Dutch and the English had banished him from their ports. The obvious question lingering about Stone's death is not, why did the Pequots kill him? But rather, why had a wronged sea captain, an almost cuckolded husband, or a colonial executioner failed to kill the rogue first? The Pequot would later claim that they believed that Stone was a Dutchman, and so his death was meant as revenge for the murder of their sachem. Even when this error was made clear that they had killed Englishmen, they still justified Stone's murder due to his kidnapping of the two Pequot. And this wasn't an indefensible act, and indeed Stone's unpopularity meant that many of the people in Massachusetts and Plymouth presumably the people he swindled, stole from, or tried to stab, praised God for his providence in disposing of such a bad Christian. Nevertheless, he was still an Englishman, and his murder and the deaths of his crew were of bad portent for those who saw how precarious the English settlements were. The indigenous peoples around New England were still recovering in population after the devastating plagues of the previous decades, but they were recovering. This is only 1634, only a few years into the Great Migration. While the English populated New England in their thousands, a pan-Indian alliance against them would outnumber the English, and would pose an existential threat. So despite many of them personally praising God for smiting the degenerate stone, Massachusetts as a colony demanded recompense for the killings when a delegation from the Pequot arrived in Boston. Winthrop wrote in his diary of the diplomatic mission from the Pequots, which arrived in Boston with a gift of wampum and beaver furs, and offering to establish trade links with Massachusetts, as well as inviting English settlement in Connecticut to act as a counterweight to the Dutch and the Narragansett. Winthrop described the meeting thus. The deputy brought them to Boston, where most of the assistants were assembled by occasion of the lecture, who calling to them some of the ministers, grew to this treaty with them. That we were willing to have friendship, but because they had killed some Englishmen, viz. Captain Stone, they must first deliver up those who were guilty of his death. They answered that the Sachem, who then lived, was slain by the Dutch, and all the men who were guilty were dead of the pox, except two, and that if they were worthy of death, they would move their Sachem to have them delivered. Winthrop goes on to explain how an agreement was reached 
whereby the two surviving men who had killed Stone would be handed over when requested, territory in Connecticut would be yielded to the English for settlement, and Massachusetts would receive 400 fathom of wampum, 40 beaver skins, and 30 otter skins. In return, the English would trade with the Pequot and remain friendly to them. While the Pequot ambassadors were in Boston, a cohort of Narragansett arrived to, as Winthrop describes it, kill the Pequot. The English duly mediated between the two sides and convinced the Narragansetts to let the ambassadors leave. Further, the English offered the Narragansetts a portion of the tribute they had just been paid if they made peace with the Pequot. Winthrop explains that the Pequot could not offer the Narragansett the tribute themselves without dishonour, but the English could act as suitable middlemen. Acting in this role, the English acted as mediators between the two indigenous nations, and helped bring about a peace between them. Bad blood still remained, and the underlying causes of the conflict, access to trade routes and to markets, were still there. The Pequots also did not hand over the two surviving men from the Stone Raid, though Massachusetts didn't push too hard on that point right now. With peace, and the agreement of the Pequot, land along the Connecticut River now became the destination of those willing to resettle from Massachusetts, as we talked about earlier in the episode. In the intervening years between Stone's death and the event which would spark the Pequot War, internal Pequot politics had their own role in the growing tension. The sachem of the Mohegans, Uncas, disputed the right of the Pequot sachem, Sassicus, to rule over him. In 1634, he fought and lost a war with Sassicus, and fled into exile with the Narragansett, only returning to his position after ritually humiliating himself in front of Sassicus as penance. But, with his return, Uncas began forging friendships with the English colonists. He was particularly close with Captain John Mason, who had established the Connecticut town of Windsor. He played on the fears of the English, spreading rumours that the killers of stone had known he was English, that this was deliberate, that it was planned by Sassicus and evidence of an indigenous conspiracy. It appears that these rumours convinced several key people among the New England colonists, particularly John Winthrop Jr. and Henry Vane, though it's worth saying that there was a healthy amount of scepticism about Uncas's claims. Though, the peace, such as it was, was still fragile, and it would only take a spark to start a war. We will cover the first acts of that war next week. Originally, this was intended to be a single episode to finish off the season, but it grew into a monster of a script, and this seems like a fitting point to pause. And yes, I said season. If you follow the show on Twitter, at BritannicaPax, you might have seen my tweet about this. Essentially, when we begin the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, we will begin a new season. This won't affect the narrative, and it shouldn't affect anyone's podcast app. Long-time listeners won't see any difference, but newer listeners will have an easier time picking a starting point if they don't want to listen to the early Stuart years. In other news, I'm happy to say that the website, paxbritannica.info, has had a facelift. Thanks to my House of Lords, I was able to put some more money into it, and I think it looks a lot cleaner. My new premium theme has the capacity for adding logging in and for merchandise, both of which I'm looking into, so watch this space. 
Speaking of my House of Lords, thank you to the King's favourite, Andrew Shoemaker, the Royal Headsman, executed today, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Marquess of Hereford, Christopher Remo, and the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz. Joining their ranks is the Right Honourable Countess of Exeter, Sonia Mayer, Peter, Viscount Sean, and the Viscount Herbie Burby. You can join their ranks and receive an ad-free RSS feed by going to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Thanks to Jenny from the Australian Histories Podcast for introducing today's episode. You can find her show at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au or wherever you listen to Pax Britannica. Thanks to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.